my late supervisor at Oxford, Professor Gilbert Ra. Thinking and meaning are the same kinds of thing, but they're not the same type of thing, because kinds and types are different sorts of things, even though they're alike in nature, since sorts and natures, though similar in character, differ in dimension, because characters and dimensions, though akin to one another in form, are contrasting in significance. There's a distinction between nature and character, and there's a distinction between character and significance. But the difference between nature and character is a different kind of difference from the difference between character and difference. But it's also the same kind of difference. <laughs> Thinking that if a different kind of difference is different from the same kind of difference, then it can't also be the same, is being caught up in some ancient prejudice and being unable to think blah, 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 blah. My name is Ben Burgess, and this is Give Them an Argument. Uh, in just a moment, I am going to be speaking to the uh, uh, libertarian commentator and, and economist, Walter Block. Uh, and then um, later in the show, uh, I'm going to be chatting uh, with the comedian and podcaster, Mike Racine. The voice you just heard was the late, great uh, Marxist analytic philosopher, G.A. Cohen, Jerry Cohen. Uh, and that is a H at home video of him that's always made me laugh, where he is uh, gently mocking uh, his dissertation advisor, Gilbert Ryle. Um, and of course, part of why it's funny is that people who come from the sort of academic background that I do, analytic philosophy, do really sometimes sound like that, uh, you know, to me too. Uh, and sometimes, you know, it can, it can seem, um, you know, very esoteric, you know, very, uh, very useless. Uh, and while I would defend the uh, the value of of studying you know esoteric things that don't have immediate application, just as as part of you know a general program of you know human flourishing, I want a society where every has, everyone has time to contemplate interesting abstract subjects. Uh, it does also make you really appreciate uh, people who come out of that background and who are able to take the analytic rigor of that background uh, and uh, and use it. Uh, to to write things that are clear and accessible uh, and uh, immediately politically useful. And the reason I bring all this up is because uh, as I'm recording this, uh, we just heard about the death of uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson, uh, who um, you know who's very old. Uh, she was born in 1929. Uh, she uh, she died uh, this last Friday. Um, and. If you don't know who that is, right? If you don't know who Judith Jarvis Thompson is or you know, why I'm talking about her at the, uh, at the beginning of this episode, uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson, um, well, one, if you've ever heard of the trolley problem, uh, then you have, then even if you've never heard of her, you've received the ripple effects of her work. Uh, so the trolley problem was something that was originally one example out of, I think literally dozens of examples uh, that was sort of made in passing uh, to, to make a totally unrelated point in an old paper by uh, Philip Afoot. 
but then um, Thompson is the one who sort of picked it up, gave it the form that we know now, called it the trolley problem, uh, and, and really started wrestling with it in an interesting way. And, and the idea that there's a problem about it, that it's not just obvious what you should do in these situations, um, is, uh, is all Thompson. Uh, if you have heard her name, it's most likely if you went to college and you took an ethics class, uh, there's like a 95% chance that you were assigned uh, her classic paper in defense of abortion, uh, which is, I believe, by a long shot, uh, certainly in terms of, you know, I mean, maybe if we're talking about like extracts from things written by Kant or Descartes or something, it's different, but certainly in terms of uh, articles that were published in philosophy journals in the uh, 20th century, uh, in defense of abortion by Judith Jarvis Thompson uh, is by far and away, by a landslide, uh, the the most widely read uh, thing that there is uh, in uh, uh, in academic philosophy. Certainly, in terms of it being included in lots of different anthologies, assigned in lots of different classes, uh, everybody reads that thing when you talk about uh, abortion rights in an ethics class. Uh, and it really embodies all of those virtues that I was just talking about in, uh, in my book, Give Them an Argument, uh, that you can see uh, behind me if you're watching this on YouTube. Uh, I, talk, uh, I talk about that paper uh, in, uh, in the chapter on poor, unfortunate Ben Shapiro. Uh, and, um, and there's a reason for that, right? Because when I, when I say give them an argument, uh, what I have in mind, you know, one of the sort of basic models of what I have in mind is what Judith Jarvis Thompson did, because that paper is incredibly logically rigorous in terms of following all the threads of argument and counterargument and objections and responses and teasing out all the differences between different things that you could say. Uh, it's not dumbed down in any way, shape or form. It's, it's actually the sort of thing that makes academic philosophers really grapple with what she's saying. Um, and in terms of her defense of abortion rights, not on the basis of making any sort of metaphysical claim about whether a fetus is a person or not yet, but on the basis of everybody's right to control their own body. Uh, but also, despite being so rigorous and philosophically interesting, it's incredibly clearly written. Uh, if you can read, you can read that paper. Uh, and she's also just a flat out really good writer. Um, she is always very clear. Uh, she's very charming. She's never boring. Uh, so if you want to be an academic philosopher and make yourself useful to, uh, to the world at large, um, really, I think that is, that's, that's one of the models that, that you should take. I mean, she's somebody who I've been reading and thinking about, you know, her, her work on a few different subjects for almost half of my life, literally. Uh, I'm 40 now, and I think the first one of her papers I read it was like 16 years ago, maybe. Uh, and uh, and, I, and I think that certainly in terms of what I, I'm trying to do with this show, doing things uh, like debating libertarians, which I'm about to do with Professor Walter Block, um, and in terms of what I tried to do in my first book and what I often try to do in Jacobin articles, uh, again, I mean, she's, she's really one of the models I try to emulate Judith Jarvis Thompson, rest in power. I am now joined by Professor Walter Block. Thank you so much for joining me. 
I'm I'm really uh, I'm really looking forward to this. I know that in our uh, our email exchange uh, before this, uh, you said that it was important uh, to to the you know give each other time to talk uh, without interruption and 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 try to have approximately equal time. So I, I think in the interest of that, when we when we get into this, we can we can treat it like we're we're playing chess in the park, you know, with a uh, you know with a little clock in between. Uh, I will uh, I will set a little a little timer uh both when i speak and, and and when you speak so um you know if you want to you know if, if if you've only got 30 seconds of stuff to say that's cool right like which might sometimes be the case answering a question or something but if um you know but otherwise i'll just do that to make sure uh that uh, you know that that i don't like cut you off if we haven't you haven't been speaking for um let's say four minutes at a time you know so uh, but before we uh, before we get to all that, right? Before we actually start um, arguing with each other, uh, when uh, when I mentioned that I was having you on, uh, somebody on uh, social media uh, showed me a video that uh, with a piece of biographical information about you, which uh, uh, you know, which I thought was surprising and kind of funny. Uh, which is that uh, there's a video where you talked about your own uh, political journey from I think originally considering yourself to be some sort of, you know, socialist uh, to your current um, libertarian views. Uh, and uh, at the beginning of that journey, actually uh, high school friends with uh, one Sanders. That's, that's true. Uh, but before I get on that, if you don't mind, I'd like to just make a comment on Judith Jarvis Thompson. Uh, I, oh, please, share, yes. I share everything you said uh, and, you know, maybe W or whatever. Um, uh, she is a magnificent writer, a very incisive, very keen. Uh, uh, the only thing I disagree with you about is you said she was um, very old when she died. She's younger than she, if she was born in 49, I was born in 49. 49. <laughs> I'm sorry. 19, 29. Oh, 29. I heard 49. And I was. No, no, no. Wow. 29. So she was very elderly. I was born in 41. But apart from that, you know, she reminds me a little bit of Ronald mm -hmm. Coase. Mm. Ronald Coase won a Nobel Prize. He didn't write that much. Judith Jarvis Thompson didn't write that much. But uh, the article that he wrote on social costs, uh, uh, that is uh, Coase, was the most highly cited article in any article in, in economics. And in economics, and I'm sure in philosophy in your field, it, it's good to be in prestigious journals and have a, a good book. But uh, citation indices are very important. And uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson, I mean, as you said, if you take any philosophy course that has anything to do with ethics, you've you got to uh, uh, come across her somewhere. So I, I uh, applaud your um, uh, analysis or um, uh, comments about her. I, I agree with you 100%. I disagree with her. I, I, uh, I'm not uh, either pro-life or pro-choice. I'm an addictionist. Uh, which is a different view than either pro-life or pro-choice, but and I have criticized her on that, but uh, so, I still so, so, <clears throat> uh, support your assessment of her. Just exquisitely brilliant. Yeah. Uh, so it's not what we're going to talk about, but just just out of curiosity, uh, do you want to take just a minute to explain what that that middle position is? Okay. Well, you know, in libertari libertarians are very divided on on the issue of abortion. Uh, Ron Paul is uh, totally pro-life. Murray Rothbard is pro-choice. And you can't get two more um, uh, famous uh, libertarians than Ron Paul and, and, and um, um, uh, Murray Rothbard. And I think they're both wrong. You know, uh, the joke is if you get 10 libertarians, you ask a question, you'll get 25 answers. Uh, so we diverge on that. Um, 
uh, my view, I call it evictionism, is I start um, with the view that the fertilized egg is a human being, a very young human being, but a human mm-hmm. being. But, it's a, but he is a trespasser. And take the case of rape. A woman is walking down the street. She gets grabbed. She gets impregnated. And now there's this person growing inside of her. That person is a trespasser. And she has the right to evict, but not to kill. Mm-hmm. So you, don't kill you don't kill innocent trespassers. You just evict them. Now, in the first six months or the first two trimesters, it, it, it doesn't matter. If you evict with modern technology, uh, the, the, the person will die. But in the third trimester, uh, the baby is viable uh, outside of the womb, and, and therefore, you're only allowed to evict but not kill. Whereas the pro-choice uh, uh, people say you have a right to evict and kill, whereas the pro-life people say you have no right to evict or kill. So I'm a moderate. That's why they call me Walter Moderate Block. I take a moderate position between the pro-choice and the pro-life position. Uh, fair enough. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that I actually did a uh, debate with a pro-life activist, uh, Kay Fellows, a few weeks ago, where, where this issue came up, and and I think that I think that what to say about that viability issue is a little bit complicated because I think I think what viability means uh, isn't always clear cut. Uh, if you have to take like uh, uh, medically heroic measures to, uh, to, to keep a fetus alive. I think that's a little bit different from, uh, from saying that you could, uh, that, that you could, that, uh, you could have separation, you know, without killing and, and then they would just be fine. Uh, but, um, but I, I guess I, I did want to, you know, since the, uh, the last time I had a libertarian on here, we we're talking about very like, uh, you know, nitty gritty policy stuff, which is which is always good. But uh, because I know you have very strong views about this, uh, I thought it might be fun to sort of pull back uh, and talk about the uh, the much bigger bigger picture, right? You know, sort of more fundamental assumptions. Um, so I was wondering if maybe we could start by by you sort of outlining your views about um, uh, about. Well, I was about to say the legitimate role of government, but you're an anarcho-capitalist. You don't think that there is a legitimate role for government. But so your your views about uh, about non-aggression and why you th- and property rights and and why from those sort of basic starting points you end up at libertarianism. Right, but before I do that, again, uh, I just wanted yeah. to mention a word about Bernie Sanders since you brought him up. Oh yeah, yeah, please, yes, sorry, I, I forgot, but yes, that's, that's okay. please, please do, yes. All geniuses are absent-minded. You're absent-minded, therefore you're a genius. I'm just uh, kidding. <laughs> Not sure that follows, but I like it. All right, go on. Go for uh, it. Bernie Sanders and I were buddies. And I have to tell you my Bernie Sanders joke. Mm. My Bernie Sanders joke is that Bernie Sanders runs away from nothing. He didn't run away from socialism when it was not that popular. He uh, even has the view that not only should ex-cons vote, but even people in prison should vote. And he doesn't run away from that, even though that's not exactly popular. But there's one person from whom he ran away, and that's me. How so? Because he was one of the best runners in the city, and we ran in the same um, uh, uh, divisions, uh, half mile and up, half mile, mile, uh, two and a half miles. And we'd start at the starting line, and then he would run away from me because he was a really good runner. So uh, we were some buddies, and and we've stayed together uh, in contact every five or ten years. How are you doing? We agreed we have different views, but uh, we both lived in the same quadrant away from Madison High School. So sometimes we walk to school together or back from school from home and we were on the track team. So we'd go to Van Cortland Park in, in the Bronx and we'd be together. So we were sort of buddies. Um, he was very political in, in, in high school. I was hmm. 
interested in girls and sports and not politics. But, you know, uh, I'm Jewish. I'm in Brooklyn. You know, everyone's a socialist there. So I was a socialist. I didn't think about it. But then later on, I uh, diverged from him. But uh, he's sort of a boyhood chum of mine. And I intend, once this COVID is over, to invite him to speak at Loyola University because I had uh, Ron Paul speak. And I like to have my students have uh, many different sides. I believe in inclusion and diversity, not so much of skin color or sex or anything, but of ideas. And Bernie certainly has a different idea than, than Ron Paul, although not so much in foreign policy because uh, he and Rand Paul, Ron's son, uh, once uh, cooperated on some sort of um, 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 bring all the troops home kind of thing. So there is, a diver- there is a, an overlap, you know, there's a Venn diagram and there's an overlap between libertarians and uh, lefties or progressives or uh, socialists or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, if Ron Paul were president, the first thing he'd do is bring home all the troops. Second thing he'd do is uh, give a pardon to everybody in jail who was in jail for a victimless crime. OK, so now now that I've um, uh, done my thing on Bernie Sanders. Yeah, now, yeah, so uh, I, I should I should mention, actually, before before we get to this, um, that uh, in uh, you know, when, uh, you know, when your friend uh, Bernie ran for president in, uh, in 2016, not only, of course, did you not support him, but I was surprised to see on YouTube that you, um, uh, that you had a, uh, a libertarian case for, uh, for Donald Trump. I don't know if you, uh, I don't know if you felt the same way this year or if you did change your mind by now. Well, what I had, what I did uh, with uh, two other people, I started the thing called uh, Libertarians for Trump. Because I thought Hillary was, you know, just horrible. I mean, she's a, a, a interventionist and she's a, a socialist and, and, and fascist, you know, whatever you want to call her. I didn't like her one bit. And I thought Donald was way better. On the other hand, I wanted uh, Gary Johnson, who was running for president on the Libertarian Party ticket, to have as many votes as he could. So what I came up with or what me and my uh, colleagues came up with was if you're in a red state or in a blue state, Vote for Gary Johnson because Donald either doesn't need your vote because he's going to get swamped in Massachusetts or he doesn't need your vote because he's going to win big in, um, in Alabama. But if you're in a purple state, then uh, uh, Pennsylvania or Florida or whatever, uh, whatever the purple state are, um, then vote for Donald because now he needs your vote. So this was my way of <clears throat> trying to have, have our cake and eat it as well, namely support. Donald vis-a-vis Hillary, but also uh, not eschew the Libertarian Party because, you know, we're Libertarians. We want to support Libertarian Party. Okay, so now I'm finally ready to answer your question. Okay, okay. So, so, uh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Just to just to be just to be clear, I I do want you to do that, but um, uh, but but I, I I didn't quite get to. I mean, just to satisfy my idle curiosity here, did you? Uh, did you take the same position in 2020 or had the immediate intermediate four years changed your mind? No, no, I, I was just too lazy. I didn't start it up again because I figured that Gary Johnson would get 5% of the vote. I mean, he was uh, the governor of New Mexico, whereas Joe Jorgensen, I figured she'd get a quarter of a percent of the vote and it really wouldn't matter. But uh, in the event, I was wrong. And I wrote this column in the Wall Street Journal where I said, I'm hitting my head against the wall. Because I should have done it again. And, and that way, because I, I regard uh, uh, Biden as horrible. I regard him as a, a weather vane and a, sort of a Bernie Sanders type or an AOC type and, and Kamala Harris 
I mean, if uh, Biden falls apart, uh, you know, Kamala Harris, and she's uh, even more radical than Bernie Sanders. So I, I was desperately in support of Donald, but I, I should have made the, the same push because the libertarians did get more than the difference between the two major parties in several of the states. And look what happened in Georgia. If the libertarians didn't uh, have a candidate in Georgia for the um, uh, Senate, uh, Purdue would have been uh, in, in the Senate right now. Uh, but he didn't make 50 percent. And, and the uh, the libertarian candidate got like two percent or something like that. So now they're going to have a runoff. And God forbid, from my point of view, uh, the Democrats win both. And now Kamala Harris is the deciding vote of the um, of the Senate. Uh, so I, I greatly regret I didn't do it again. OK, uh, yeah, fair enough. I mean, I, I think, uh, like I said, I, I wish that I agree with you that uh, that the Biden was a uh, was a crypto Bernie Sanders type. I'd be I'd be so much happier right now. Uh, I, I, I think. Uh, but in any case, um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I do get like the you know, like whatever my my preferences would be very different. But the electoral strategy makes sense to me. So uh, but I don't want to delay you any, any further. Let's uh, let's let's do this. OK, well, the libertarian. Libertarianism, as I understand it, and as I say, you get 10 libertarians, you get 25 different views. Uh, there are two basic, well, maybe three basic foundations of libertarianism. What are they? First, the non-aggression principle. Keep your midst to yourself. Don't be grabbing other people with their property unless you have their permission. Sadomasochism is okay because uh, consenting adults agree. Boxing is okay because, you know, if I punch you in the nose, but you've agreed to be in the boxing match with me, it's okay. Now, I can't bite your ear and I can't hit below the belt, but we've agreed to uh, punch. So that's okay. So the non-aggression principle means no um, no uh, murder, no theft, no slavery, no, um, I don't know what, uh, rape, uh, whatever. It just rules that out. But now you need another part of the Libertarian uh, Foundation, and that is private property rights. Because I notice you have a nice uh, shirt there. Um, uh, what is it? Montana? Uh, no. Um, uh, Michigan, Michigan State. Michigan State. Now, suppose I grab that Michigan State shirt right off of you. Am I a criminal or not? Did I violate the non-aggression principle? Well, it all depends upon who is the rightful owner of that Michigan State shirt. If you stole it from me yesterday, which you didn't, and I grab it, well, then I'm the good guy. And if you resist me, you're the bad guy. But the fact of the matter is, I never saw that shirt before. It's your shirt. And if I grab it, I'm the thief. But it's because of private property rights. Well, how do you get private property rights? We go to John Locke. You mix your labor with virgin land. You start growing uh, corn. Uh, I domesticate a cow and I get milk. And now in Robert Nozick's uh, terminology, another famous philosopher, uh, anything, any legitimate title transfer. So barter would be one. So you have corn. I have milk. We trade. Now I have the corn, even though I didn't produce it. You have the milk, even though you didn't produce that. But we can trace it to homesteading and and title legitimate title transfer. Uh and, and uh, any legitimate title transfer, such as buying, selling, lending, uh, gambling, whatever. And the third plank of libertarianism is uh, free association. Nobody should be forced to associate with anyone else against his will. I mean, the big problem with slavery and rape is that you're, uh, the victim is forced to associate with either the master or the rapist when uh, they don't want to. So those would be the three planks of libertarianism. And then uh, what are the implications? Well, no victimless crimes, uh, economic freedom, laissez-faire capitalism, uh, non-aggression. The uh, 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 U.S. is not the uh, uh, policeman of the world. And that would be libertarianism in, in three minutes. 
All right, nice. You came in under time. Uh, so, uh, so I, I like that you that you started out by by acknowledging something that that is that is very important that I, I that uh, that I think that some presentations of, of libertarianism maybe skip over, which is that uh, non-aggression uh, by itself doesn't actually uh, doesn't actually get you very far because if if we have um, if um, the difference uh, between uh, between aggression. Uh, and uh, and defense is who's entitled to uh, to to a piece of uh, of property. So if um, uh, if uh, as you say, you take the uh, you take the uh, the shirt off of me. Well, if you're the rightful uh, owner of the shirt, it's not aggression. Uh, if uh, if you if you aren't uh, if you aren't, it is. Uh, which which is very important because I think that there's a way that I'm often frustrated by that people present libertarianism uh, that uh, that it's about well. Uh, here are all the things that uh, that nobody should uh, nobody should have to uh, to to go to jail for. You know, I, I don't want to use force to do this or that or the other thing. Uh, but of course, um, a uh, the you know, a no trespassing sign uh, is a uh, you know is an implicit threat of a uh, force. You know that if you that if you that uh, that if you trespass, uh, I you know I'm going to. Well, certainly ask you to leave, but you know, but if you, but if you don't, uh, then you know, then I have options that may include, you know, calling the cops uh, in uh, in in you know your preferred uh, society. That might play out differently, uh, you know, because because uh, there wouldn't be any you know cops, but there might be. No, the no, no, there'd be cops, private cops. Okay. So, uh, so I call you know, so I'm threatening them uh, to uh, to call the private cops. Fair enough, right? So, um, so. This is really important because when we talk about something like uh, redistributive taxation, uh, that uh, that you're uh, that you uh, you're going to be taxed uh, to uh, to pay for somebody uh, uh, for somebody else, that uh, that you know that you're going to be taxed uh, to uh, to pay for uh, for for somebody else's health care, for example. Um, if you start from the premise that that other person. Uh, you know that that other person has you know has a right to healthcare that they uh, that's a uh, that that's like a legitimate um, you know that uh, that they are entitled uh, to uh, to that you know that money that they have a uh, that it's uh, that it's morally right that they should have it uh, to pay for their healthcare rather than uh, rather than that you should have it in the bank account uh, then the non-aggression uh, the non-aggression principle hasn't uh, hasn't been violated so what's really doing all of the work isn't the non-aggression principle. It's the underlying theory of, of property rights because if look, I mean, I could agree with John Rawls that uh, the right, you know, that the right theory of entitlement is one that's based on considerations that have nothing to do with whether um, you know my property can be traced back to a just act of original acquisition, like you're talking about. I could think that uh, the right theory of entitlement has to do with considerations like fairness, but still agree with the non-aggression principle that sure, if 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 you're entitled to something. Then, uh, then I shouldn't take it away. It's 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 kind of tautological. Uh, so I, I think that the two things that I really like to pursue uh, are one that that question uh, about uh, what is you know the right the right theory of entitlement. Why should we accept this theory of property rights uh, that it has to uh, that you know that uh, you're only entitled to something and you are entitled to something if it can be traced back to um, to a just act of original acquisition. Uh, we'll get to that, right? But the one that I'd really like to pursue before that is the gap between this theory and and the world uh, the world that we live in. Because I understand that if we lived in a 
a, a world where maybe, you know, we started out with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and I, I just hit time, so I'll, uh, I'll just, uh, I'll just, I'll just wrap up the uh, the sentence and then throw it to you. Uh, if we start with Adam and Eve in uh, the Garden of Eden, uh, and their descendants uh, spread out over the world, engaging in uh, homesteading of unclaimed land, uh, and then they barter with each other, or you know, they invent money, and then eventually we get the distribution of wealth and property that we have in the world today. I understand why, if your theory, if your theory is right that would mean that everybody was entitled to what they had and taxation would be theft and all that stuff. But of course, that's not the world that we live in at all, right? The economic history of the real world has almost no resemblance to that. Uh, so I, I, so I, I guess that's what I'd be interested in hearing you speak to, how this, how this grounds the rights to property that people actually have in the world as it exists right now. Uh, very well said. And by the way, about this timing, you don't have to really do the chess clock. I mean, if it's 60-40 or 40-60, that's okay. I just don't want to do okay. 90 well, I, I just, I just, I just want to make sure because there's a concern that you raised. So, But, uh, you know, um, uh, we're amiable. We're having a nice discussion and, you know, we don't have to, you know, make it to the, to the, to the second. Okay. Um, uh, I, I think what you're saying is, is very valuable and, and very correct. Uh, with one may, maybe um, um, uh, uh, minor uh, disagreement when you say that it has no resemblance to that. It has a little bit of a resemblance or how much of a resemblance we can argue about, but it, it's not no resemblance. It's got some resemblance. Well, now I think what we're getting into is uh, reparations. Uh, now let's take reparations for slavery. Mm. There's this guy Horowitz. Uh, Horowitz? Horowitz. David Horowitz. Horowitz. Yeah. David Horowitz, uh, the second thoughts guy. Mm -hmm. who says, look, we shouldn't have any reparations to blacks for slavery because, look, none of us now ever had a slave, <laughs> right? You, you didn't have any slaves. I didn't have any slaves. Uh, nobody living now, at least in the United States, I don't know about what's going on in Africa, we never had slaves, nor any black people been slaves. So the whole thing is crazy, and, and, and we shouldn't uh, have any reparations. That's one extreme view. The other extreme view is, all whites owe all blacks um, uh, reparations slavery uh, because, you know, we had slavery. And I'm, again, Walter Moderate Block. And I say, well, let's take a moderate position here. It's true that not all whites owe uh, all blacks anything because um, many blacks just came to this country two years ago. Uh, I'm Jewish. Uh, my uh, parents came. Uh, my father's people came from Russia in the, uh, 1880. My mother's parents came from Poland in 1902. We had nothing to do with slavery, so why do I owe any, anybody anything? But Horowitz uh, starts with a proper premise that not all whites owe all blacks anything, and he concludes erroneously that no whites owe any blacks anything, and that's false. Now, what should have happened in 1865 is we should have had an ex post facto law saying slavery is um, <laughs> a violation of rights, slight violation of rights. I'm kidding, not a slight, a very, very serious uh, violation of rights. And what should have happened is that uh, we would have put in jail or punished all the slave owners. And uh, we would have taken all of their property. And uh, I mean, let's say there were 500 slaves and there were, I don't know, 20,000 acres, if I got the, the right numbers. Each slave gets 40 acres and a mule. That's where you got 40 acres and a mule from. Namely, you divide the plantation into uh, 500 bits, 40 acres each, and you give a mule or whatever it is, a barn, I don't know. And we don't have to worry, you know, uh, 
I only get 10 acres. I'm a, a slave because it's a fertile acres. And, and you get 70 acres because it's not fertile. We don't have to worry about that. Just on average, everyone gets it. But what happened instead is that the slave owner kept his property and, and he said to the slaves, well, there's no more slavery. Goodbye. I might hire you, but um, I'm not giving you a penny. And right now, there's some great-great-grandson of the slave owner who lives in Mississippi. He's got that plantation. And he's uh, innocent in the sense that he is um, 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 uh, he didn't have slaves, but he's the holder of stolen property. Look, if that shirt, the Michigan State shirt, uh, if my if your grandfather stole it from my grandfather, I want that shirt back because you're innocent. You didn't steal anything, but you are now the holder of stolen goods. So you should give it back to me. So my view is we should have reparations and we should have no ex post facto laws. You know, that I mean, the Nuremberg trials uh, established that, you know, the Germans said we were just following orders. And we said, uh, ta ta no, no, no. Uh, you know, uh, uh, putting people in concentration camps and killing them is not a real good thing. And, and we're going to punish you for it, even though it was legal in Germany to do that. And they were just following the law. So my answer to your question, my long winded answer to your question is, we have to um, uh, have reparations from some people to other people. But now the burden of proof is um, on, on the um, uh, uh, plaintiff. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. And the further back you go in history, you go back to the Indians where there's no written language, you go back 2,000 years ago to Arabs and, and uh, Jews, it, it's harder to prove anything. But if some black guy in, in Harlem can now prove that his great-grandfather was, uh, was a slave in, in this Mississippi place, he should get um, you know, a one uh, 200th or one 500th of that plantation. And if there are others, they should take the whole plantation away from him. So uh, I agree that the present uh, distribution of um, property is not exactly kosher, but uh, we libertarians believe in, in uh, reparations. And, and we don't believe in any right to health care. We only believe in negative rights. They're only right not to be murdered, not to be stolen from, not to be raped. No right to health care. That, that's just wealth. No right to wealth. Because, because if I have a right to health care, you have an obligation to give it to me. Whereas if I have a right not to be murdered, you have an obligation not to murder me. If I have a right not to be raped, which I do, you have an obligation not to rape me. But if I have, a, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll do my best. So I, I, did, uh, I did want to, uh, I did want to jump in here. So, sure. sure. Um, so I think that, um, so, so I don't like, yeah, I mean, I understand, of course, that you only believe in, uh, in, in negative rights. Uh, you know, I, I think there are positive rights, uh, like, like a right to health care. Uh, that doesn't mean a right to health care doesn't mean a right to, uh, to have uh, any particular person uh, deliver that health care. What it does mean uh, is, uh, is a right uh, to, uh, to have the tab picked up by the state uh, via progressive taxation. That's what people believe in a right to health care actually, uh, actually mean by it. So I, I do want to I do want to press this point about why we should believe that there are only negative rights. Why we should think that uh, the right theory of entitlement is uh, you know is that everybody's entitled to exactly what they end up with as a result of this process you know of some process of um, you know what Robert knows it called capitalistic acts between consenting adults going back to some just act of original acquisition if we live in a world where it actually happened that way. Uh, because even if we did live in such a world, you know, to put my cards on the table, I would still disagree with you. Uh, but, uh, but, but I'm also curious, you know, I, I do want to just spend another minute on the gap between the world that we actually live in and that one, uh, because uh, I, I get why you think 
that uh, that they um, that the living descendants of uh, of slaves uh, should uh, should have a right to uh, to get uh, reparations from the living de- descendants of slave owners if the living descendants of slave owners still have wealth that's derived uh, from uh, from the misdeeds of uh, of their ancestors. I get why you have that position, uh, but the thing that I get a little bit less is where is how this idea that okay, if that can't be proven, then everything else just just stays as is comes from. Uh, because, you know, this idea that, you know, possession is nine-tenths the law, I mean, that's a very useful pragmatic principle for a, um, you know, a legal system, you know, just, just trying to figure this out. But it, it's certainly not obvious how it flows from or even fits with uh, the idea that what people are basically entitled to uh, is uh, whatever, uh, whatever comes out of this, uh, this free market uh, process. Uh, in, and so to make that objection concrete, right? Because I, I can imagine like, you know, I'm, I'm sure you talk about this all the time. I'm sure you get where I'm going, but like, uh, but, you know, for anybody who's watching or listening to this, who, who might not quite get the point, right? Like, uh, let's tweak that example that you just gave about the uh, the plantation. And let's say only half of that is true, right? So let's say that it is true or only half of it can be proven, right? So uh, the half that can be proven uh, is that there is some descendant of a slave owner, uh, who is still enjoying wealth that's derived from uh, from his ancestors' uh, uh, holding of slaves? You know, he's still living in the old plantation house. You know, there's been an uninterrupted family fortune over the generations. Uh, but let's say the other half doesn't exist. Either uh, either it's impossible to prove that any particular person uh, was a um, you know was a descendant of a slave held on that plantation, uh, or just for whatever reason. Uh, uh, all you know, there are there just aren't are no living descendants uh, of the uh, of the slaves who were held at that plantation. Uh, it's if I'm if I'm hearing you right, uh, it's also your position that the person who is currently occupying uh, that that old um, that old plantation manor uh, and is currently enjoying you know that uh, that that inherited uh, stolen wealth. Uh, has a has a right to uh, to continue in it that it would be that if we um, that uh, that if if that you know if that money were taxed you know for uh, for you know to provide for any of the positive rights that I believe in that you know that that would therefore violate uh, that person's rights and I don't understand where that comes from on your theory because if if you say that what entitles somebody to a given piece of property is that either they did the lock-in, you know, labor mixing, you know, they homesteaded the piece of land themselves or whatever, or there's some sort of process uh, of barter or sale or gambling that, uh, you know, by which their possession of it can be traced back to that. Neither of those would be the case here. So, so where does their right to, where does their right, their right to that property come from? Well, that, that's a very, very good criticism on your part. I, I think it's very incisive on, on your side uh, to query that. Before I answer it, I just wanted to say one or two things about Nozick and Rawls and Wilt Chamberlain. You remember the mm-hmm. Wilt Chamberlain example? Mm-hmm. I, I thought that uh, Nozick just uh, you, you liberated might, you might, uh But I, would, I wouldn't necessarily assume that everybody watching or listening is familiar with it. So do you want to just remind us what it is very quickly? Yeah. Uh, Will Chamberlain is a great basketball player, and he says, um, hey, everyone come watch me dunk a basketball. And we all pay him 20 bucks, and now he's got uh, 20000 And uh, he's very rich, and we're very poor. Uh, well, 
less less rich, and he's very rich. And if we want to have some sort of egalitarianism, what we have to do is uh, obliterate that. Namely, we have to make him give back the money, in which case he's not going to do it in the first place. So uh, if you take the Rawlsian system seriously, says Robert Nozick, who I regard as one of the eminent uh, libertarian philosophers, way up there with Judith Jarvis Thompson and a few other people, well, then we can't have any trade because every trade uh, leads to some sort of inequality. But we both gain because when I pay that 20 bucks to watch him, I'm richer because I valued the sight of him dunking the basketball at more than $20. Otherwise, I'm not kicking in 20. And he valued the, the, the 200,000 he gets or the 20,000 he gets way more than the sweat of you know dunking a basketball. And he likes it anyway. So there's mutual gain, but the mutual gain would have to be obliterated and we couldn't have any trade and we'd all die if we didn't have any trade. So that's one justification. Uh, a similar justification goes for nine-tenths of the law. Look, suppose it were reversed. Suppose the burden of proof was not on the, uh, look, I want that shirt. I, I, uh, I'm sorry, I, I've been attracted to your shirt. No, nothing, no perversion here. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a weirdo. Well, I am in some ways, but not on that shirt, but I want that shirt. Now, right now, the law is possession is nine tenths of the law. And I go to court and I say, I want that shirt. And um, and I have to prove something. I have to show a bill of sale or God knows what I have to show. But suppose it was the other way around and, and you had to prove it. And, and the burden of proof is on you. And you threw away the bill of sale or your aunt Tilly bought you the shirt and she threw it away. I could get that shirt. And now you could come back and get the shirt back from me. And I could go to Bill Gates and say, I want that Maserati. And unless Bill Gates has got ironclad, in other words, if we did this, we would be like my criticism of Coase. Coase, uh, uh, well, I don't want to get into Coase because I'll take five whole minutes. But uh, if we did this, we'd all die. Why would we all die? Because property rights wouldn't be uh, uh, safe. Anyone could claim anything else. And, and with the burden of proof on the, on the, um, on the defendant, uh, and people don't keep, you don't, get, you don't have a record of, of the bill of sale for that shirt. You don't have a picture, say, of you wearing that shirt. So I would get that shirt. And then you could come back and get the shirt back from me, and somebody else could get the shirt from the two of us. So uh, possession of nine-tenths of the law and the burden of proof is on the plaintiff is crucially important in, in legal philosophy because if you turn it around, you, you see that we'll all be busy grabbing each other's property and we won't be producing anything or a lot of people won't be. So that would be my reason. Okay. So uh, so I think we want to separate two separate uh, separate issues. And I, and I also, um, before I throw it back to you, I, I do want to go back to Wilt Chamberlain because I, I think that's a even more basic issue. But uh, but I, I want to say, I do want to separate out two things, right? One is uh, is the burden of proof, and the other one is the like moral significance of uh, of current possession, right? So I, I think it's it's certainly fair to say uh, that yes, obviously we want the uh, you know we we want the uh, the burden of you know we have burden of proof to be on uh, on people who who want to you know to disrupt the way that things are right now. Uh, that you know that if you claim that I that I stole something from you, of course, burden of proof uh, should should be on you. On that, we completely agree. But I'm not sure how re how relevant that is to uh, to to this situation uh, because if if we're talking about a case, and you know, I would argue I don't know how deep in the weeds we want to go on this. I would argue that uh, that the typical case uh, is maybe a little closer to. Uh, you know, to the case of the uh, the descendant of the slave owner than uh, than, than we'd like to admit, because 
Of course, the economic history of the real world is so full of this stuff. I mean, capitalism, even in Europe, emerged out of uh, um, emerged from from feudalism, uh, and you know, and there was certainly no shaking of the etch a sketch, and everybody starting out with equal amounts of property. After that, in fact, what you had was brutal enclosure of the land uh, to you know force people off the land they were living on to make them get jobs in factories. And that was a walk in the park compared to what happened here in the new world with slavery and dispossession of Native Americans, et cetera. Uh, and I think the issue is going to be much broader than the question of whether you can, uh, of, of whether there's some, you know, individual parcel of land, you know, that, that has some other rightful owner, uh, because uh, all economic trend, you know, transactions are going to be, you know, again, this is all assuming for the sake of argument that this is what we should care about, you know, whether you can like, this is what entitles somebody to a given good, whether or not you can trace it back to some just act of original you know, acquisition, uh, which is certainly not my view, but if it was, you know, if it was that I'd be really worried about trying to figure out how to apply it because all, um, like all past economic transactions, you know, take place in an environment where, you know, who has the money to lend to who, who has the money, you know, to win from who and gambling, et cetera, et cetera, are thoroughly polluted uh, by the uh, extremely non-pristinely libertarian economic history of, uh, of the real world. Uh, but in the example that I gave you, uh, in particular, the slave owner, we're, we're not dealing with the burden of proof question, right? We know that that guy uh, has, uh, remember this example, we know that uh, that this manor was inherited from somebody who was inherited from somebody who was inherited from somebody who was a slave owner. We know that, right? We just don't have a rightful claimant. Uh, so the question, uh, the question is, okay, so we can't redistribute it to rightful claimant, but if we redistribute it to, uh, to other things that are important, have we therefore violated the guy's moral rights? You know, is there some property right that he has to that, that we are, um, that, that we are duty bound uh, that, that we're duty bound to uh, to respect, and if so, where does it come from? Uh, and it doesn't see it. We know it doesn't come from being able to be traced back to a just act of original acquisition, because in this hypothetical, we know that that's not the case, right? We know that it, it can't be traced back. Uh, you know, remember we don't have a rightful claimant, but we know how he got it. Uh, so, so again, my question on that was if if this descendant of slave owner has a right to uh, that wealth that's ultimately derived from the, the, uh, the slavery, uh, the for family fortune from slavery, uh, if he has a right to, uh, you know, to not be, uh, uh, to not be assessed some sort of, uh, some sort of uh, uh, tax on, his, uh, on, on his, his manner that he inherited from his slaving family, where does that right come from? And that's what I was trying to push. Now, I, I do want to, um, you know, I, I, I know we're being informal about the time, but, uh, but, but since I have been timing myself just to make sure, uh, you know, I, I, I do want to throw it, uh, throw it back to you before I get to the Wilt Chamberlain thing, but I am glad that you brought that up. That's important. Well, I, I think, again, you're making a very sophisticated argument against my position, and I appreciate that, uh, but you're, you're trying to twist away from what I said, and what I said was that if we adopt this, that... Um, we know that uh, this guy in Mississippi, we know where he got that plantation from, from the blood, sweat, and tears of black uh, people um, 150 years ago. We know that. And I, I can see that. I mean, it's hardly, hardly a, a concession. I mean, it's obviously true. But if we then say, well, therefore, he should give it up, then we're 
uh, we're undermining the possession is nine cents of the law and we're undermining the burden of proof argument. And then we get back into what I was saying that uh, uh, we're going to be busy in court grabbing each other's property and we'll all die because we won't be producing anything. I once got into an argument with Milton Friedman on this question and he said, you know, um, uh, look, uh, land value is only 10% of the GDP. Forget about all that. You know, uh, the problem with the black people, uh, the problem with black poverty is their family has been screwed up by welfare. They're unemployed because of minimum wage. Uh, uh, the drug law puts them all in jail, well, not all in jail. And, you know, forget about it. And I said, well, you know, you're right. As a matter of practicality, reparations aren't that important. If I were the king of the black people and I wanted to promote black um, uh, black welfare, I would say, forget about this. It's only 10% of the GDP. Let's worry about the black family. Let's worry about the drugs. Let's worry about minimum wage laws. But I, I said to Milton Friedman, but what about justice? And he said, well, you know, the, uh, the, the, the desire for justice will lead to disarray or something. Namely, he, he didn't understand what justice was. You and I understand what justice is. You and I are closer on this than he and I, and he's a libertarian and, and you're not. Um, I, I, I had one or two other things I wanted to say. Okay, well, well let's, let's, let's at least circle back now, because uh, I do, uh, obviously, just, you know, just for the record, we have uh, severe disagreements on the empirical question about, uh, uh, about uh, the, uh, the causes of, uh, of the racial wealth gap. Uh, but um, I, I think that probably goes without saying, but I, I do, uh, but I'm, I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, but, uh, but I, I don't want to let the, uh, let the, uh, the Wilt Chamberlain thing uh, get, uh, get lost. Uh, so, um, so this is, uh, so if you have a theory, this is not supposed to just be an objection to, uh, to, to Rawls, who I sort of gestured at earlier, right? Thinking that justice was about fairness, uh, but it's not just supposed to be an objection to the nitty gritty details of, of Rawls's theory. It's supposed to be an objection to any theory according to which um, to decide whether somebody is entitled to a given piece of property, um, you know, how wealth should be distributed. We should be worrying about the end state. We should be worrying about, uh, you know, whether there's massive inequality. We should be worried about whether there's, um, uh, whether there's poverty. We should worry about whether people are, um, uh, are dying because their GoFundMe to buy more insulin, you know, uh, wasn't sufficiently funded, you know, which unfortunately happens. Uh, that we shouldn't be worried about that, right? What we should be worried about, Nozick thinks, is the origin, right? You know, where, the, where this distribution of wealth comes from. Does it have immaculate origins that we can trace it back to uh, these just acts of original acquisition, like homesteading uh, unclaimed property, uh, or, uh, or, or does it come about in some, uh, in some illegitimate way? Uh, and so he says, look, if you're Rawls, or if you're somebody who's... Um, you know, you have any other theory according to which we should care about the justice of the end state. Uh, then let's assume that we start with the end state. Everybody gives a, um, uh, you know, like there's a, you know, uh, you know, whatever people, everybody gives 20 bucks to, uh, to Wilt Chamberlain uh, to see him play basketball. Suddenly uh, he's the, uh, suddenly he's the richest person in the world. And now, and now he says, you're supposed to have a problem because on the one hand uh, the, um, the end state isn't what you want, right? Surely your theory of justice doesn't tell you that Will Chamberlain should be the richest person in the world. Uh, but, uh, but on the other hand, uh, where's the injustice? You know, Because uh, it can't be that it wasn't their money to spend however they want, according to your theory. Uh, it was, you know, it was, uh, you know, because we started off at the end state that you think is right. Uh, so, uh, so, so, so who has a legitimate complaint? Nobody has a legitimate complaint. 
and and what I would I would say about that uh, is even sort of bracketing the issue that um, you know we've sort of been circling around with all the stuff about reparations and whether possession you know is is good enough you know to have have property rights. Um, you know, I think that, you know, so one issue is that I think that the actual origins of economic inequality in the real world, I, I you know, I would argue bear very little resemblance to uh, to the Wilt Chamberlain case. But then, uh, but then the other issue uh, is that I think that, well, you could actually, somebody could have, uh, have, have a legitimate uh, complaint. Like if, if, uh, if Wilt Chamberlain uh, makes, uh, you know, makes so much money off of this, uh, that uh, that we get to a point where you know he could be ta- you know five percent of it could be taxed away uh, and uh, and that would like save a lot of people's lives through healthcare that would mean that people uh, got to uh, got to go to college who wouldn't get to go to college uh, etc. Then I think the people who don't get to do those things have a legitimate complaint. Now if they're the ones who gave the twenty bucks, uh, then I understand that you could say well okay I mean they should have thought of that. Uh, but if they're the um, you know the children or the grandchildren of 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 the people uh, the people who did so even that uh, even that doesn't really apply uh, and uh, and and I think that I think that they do have a legitimate complaint and I'd say that as far as okay was the was there anything unjust or objectionable about the giving of the twenty bucks no but uh, but one Nozick's kind of loading the deck because he's assuming that the the primary question we should be concerned with is how did this come about. Uh, which is the the issue in dispute, and then two, uh, I'd say that I think that he might be committing um, what's sometimes called the composition fallacy, which is like uh, if if I say nobody would actually say this, but it gets the idea across. You know, every molecule that makes up the Brooklyn Bridge is invisible, therefore the Brooklyn Bridge is invisible. Well, uh, just because the uh, the individual. Uh, you know, the individual transactions that, that bring about uh, some overall distribution of wealth are all individually fine, right? You know, the unobjectionable uh, doesn't necessarily mean uh, that, the, uh, that the resulting distribution of wealth, uh, you know, that's, that's maybe constituted by all of them uh, is, uh, is unobjectionable, especially if, you know, my theory of justice, my theory of what should happen uh, is, you know, I mean, whatever, I'll put my cards on the table, I would go further than this, but you know, but just to start with, right, that, um, that it's not that we should necessarily stop people from engaging in all sorts of economic and, you know, interactions, the other 355 days of the year, but that, you know, every April 15th, we should take measures to, uh, to correct that. Uh, and, uh, and to, uh, to take some of it away to redistribute to other causes, etc., uh, which isn't going to cause any of the sort of chaos that you're worried about if possession wasn't nine tenths of the law. You know, it's 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 a very you know it's a very orderly process. It's not disruptive, uh, and and so I, I think that I think that I think that the Wilt Chamberlain um, you know example you know doesn't uh, doesn't really uh, disturb my sleep you know in my continued advocacy of redistribution. Okay, um, I'm gonna let you have the last substantive word. Uh, okay. I disagree with several things, but we're the hours I and, and I got to go. Okay, but fair enough. I, fair wanted, enough. I wanted to pay you a compliment. I, you know, I know that you've had debates with other libertarians. I have had other debates with other uh, lefties or socialists or whatever mm. progressives, whatever you call yourself. And I wanted to say that this is the most enjoyable one I've ever had. Because every other one I've had, they start interrupting me. They start laughing at me. Uh, the attitude I get from you is we are fellow 
uh, buddies. We're trying to get to the truth with a capital T. We're trying to get one millionth of an inch closer to it. We're not maybe succeeding, but we're trying. Namely, we're we're being uh, polite to each other. We're being supportive of each other. My criteria for when I win a debate is not whether I convince the audience. I want to convince you. And if I don't convince you to be a libertarian, I failed. So I now uh, make a proposition to you and I'm going to utter a threat against you. I want to do this again. And if you don't have me on your show again, I'm going to steal that shirt. So, Uh, okay. All right. All right. Fair. So watch out, boy. (laughs) All right. All right. Uh, All right. Understood. Uh, The, uh, so uh, despite your, despite your threats of violence, I will have you back on um, for sure. Uh, I'm, I'm not, um, uh, I'm not as disconsolate because my ambitions aren't as high as yours. I, 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 I didn't, um, uh, you know, my, my ambition is not to, uh, is not to convince you to be a socialist. I don't, uh, I, I imagine that if Bernie couldn't do it, I probably can't, uh, but, uh, but I will, but, uh, but I would perhaps, you know, anybody who's watching or listening, you know, who, who agrees with you, if, if, if I can, uh, if I can give them any of those uh, second thoughts in the opposite direction of Horowitz's second thoughts, then I'm happy. But who knows? Uh, in any case, uh, much appreciated. Professor Walter Block as uh, libertarian economist and commentator. Uh, is there anything you want to plug before you go? Um, I don't know. Libertarianism is great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, and uh, I will speak to you again at some point in the future. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Take care. All right. I am now joined uh, by uh, comedian and podcaster uh, Mike Racine, uh, who is uh, the host of uh, The Sit Down uh, and uh, also, uh, crucially, uh, for, uh, for my purposes, he, uh, he is one of uh, three people who has been joining me for the new series of monthly bonus episodes uh, recapping The Sopranos along with uh, Nando Vila and uh, Big Waz. Uh, so I thought this, uh, I thought this would be, um, you know, this would be a fun way to, uh, you know, to cap off the episode, maybe switch gears a little bit after the, uh, after the Walter Block debate. So how are you doing today, Mike? Good. How'd your, how'd your debate go? Uh, you know, it was fine. It was, uh, like after watching, uh, the YouTube videos of his debates with Sam Cedar, I was like expecting that to be a lot more, um, I don't know. I was expecting it to be a lot more of something than it was, but, uh, you know, for, you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't as, uh, it wasn't as intense as it's intense. Yeah. yeah. Nice. But it'd yeah. be funny if he converted you to libertarianism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Now we'd spend the second half of the episode just with like me trying to convince you to be a convince libertarian. me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, say no more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Which is actually, um, yeah, that like especially because because he's you know he's not even just like a normal you know libertarian who says that like you know we can't uh, uh, you know we can't have taxes for anything but the police and the military you know he's mm-hmm. he's the uh, you know he's a you know he's an anarcho capitalist you know so he thinks that you should have I guess like uh, you know private uh, you know private police forces uh, to to like settle your land disputes or whatever and then if uh, right uh, and then if if they like have a disagree with each other about like who has a legitimate claim to what I'm not quite sure what the procedures are, but I, I guess it might involve an actual sit down. Yeah. Well, or it sounds like maybe you just go to war. 
Yeah, right. Like, uh, like I mean, that it seems like either you uh, either you just go to war, or like somehow like your private police force. You know, like 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 it seems like the range of options would be the same as with the mafia, right? Like you right, know, right. if you have a you know if you have a beef, either you just like end up killing each other. Uh, or you, you know, do the sit down and try to work something out or like you try to do that and it doesn't work. And then you go to war for a little while, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you come back. I mean, none of it, like, you know, I really enjoy watching that in movies and TV shows. I don't know that I actually want to live like that. Right. 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 Yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, uh, so since, uh, you know, since we are doing the, uh, the Sopranos thing, uh, you know, that might be a, uh, that might be a fun way to start, you know, so we only did the, uh, the first, um, you know, the first episode uh, so far, uh, do the, uh, do the second one uh, in, uh, in December sometime. Uh, but I, I think, you know, one of the reasons I asked you to do that is I get, I get, you know, the sense that, that you're like me and some other people I know and that, that like, you know, the show aired a long time ago, but like, you know, that you're probably enough of an obsessive that you've gone back and like watched it a few times since then. Um. Yeah, I rewatched it. Well, it's funny because I watched it the first time I watched it. I was probably like 23 years old. And then I rewatched it with my wife recently. So I've only seen the whole show twice, but I watch a lot of clips on YouTube and stuff like that. And uh, it is funny, you know, because when you when you're 23, your, your brain's not even really developed. So right. a lot of it was just me, you know, being like, oh, this lifestyle is really cool. You know, <laughs> I guess I didn't make the connection that he's bad and then and then my second time watching i was like oh they're trying to say that because i remember like a friend of mine i made a friend of mine laugh because i because the scene where tony beats up zelman with the belt i remember being like man i was really disappointed in him for doing that (laughs) but like that's kind of the point they're making throughout the whole show yeah yeah, that like literally like everything he does every day is (laughs) about you know using violence to uh yeah to like shake people down and enrich himself. And, you know, it's like, Oh no, that's so disappointing. Right. Be, like, which, which is funny. Like a lot of, I mean, look, I mean, lots of people whose, whose brains have uh, fully developed, you know, I, I think are still there to some extent. Like I remember, um, uh, you know, I mean, look, you know, I mean, people, uh, people who I admire a lot, you know, I remember the, uh, the late Michael Brooks, you know, there was like a, you know, we used to talk about Sopranos all the time. And there was a point where I like, I brought up cause I, you know, like, I thought it was like kind of funny in like a dark, horrible way. Right. You know, that the, uh, the scene where uh, uh, Polly and Christopher uh, end up killing the waiter because he goes outside and asking, you know, asking why he, uh, you know, they didn't live a bigger, bigger tip. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and he was like, Oh yeah, I love the show. But like, that's, that's like one of the things I almost can't watch. I feel so bad for the guy, you know? Y- yeah. That, yeah. that moment in the show for me was like, when I saw that, I just, I turned on those two forever. I, that was like a lot. That was like too much for me. Cause I feel like I've been in that situation. I mean, I waited tables for a little bit when I was in my early twenties. Um, but my wife actually, she was a waitress at Caroline's for about 10 years. So I just understand the plight of that, you know, that job it's, it's stressful and it's degrading and you have dreams about it when you, you know, when you're not there. So I just, I, I know that moment where you're like, where you're just almost at your breaking point and you're like, I'm going to say something, the next person, I'm going to say something. And I feel like that's the moment that that guy had. And then he ended up, I, I, I hated those two forever after that. Yeah, yeah no, fair yeah. enough. 
I mean, I, I guess, guess it was kind of maybe it's kind of funny. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's 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 not like I mean, obviously the thing itself is is horrifying, right? Like, yeah, but it's it's the sense in which I guess like I guess their reactions in there. I, I guess is a little bit funny to me in sort of the same way as uh, like okay, so the episode I've probably rewatched the most times because it would be like a sort of have friends over and you get drunk and like some point in the night you pop it on, you know, thing uh, thing for me was the. Um, uh, the one where uh, the same two, right? Polly and Christopher get lost in the woods, um, mm. and and that original, um, you know, the way that it all starts. Uh, by the way, if you're watching or listening to this and you've never seen The Sopranos, we're, yeah, I'm just gonna keep doing this. It's fine. Uh, but it's not really uh, like a spoiler type show, though. I think I yeah, don't know. No. I feel like I, I knew all the spoilers going into it, and I still enjoyed yeah. it. Although no, I kind of wish sure. I didn't know what happened to Adriana because I kind of knew yeah. what happened to her. Yeah, that was kind of the thing I wish I didn't get spoiled. Okay, fair enough. And now you have for anybody who's watching or listening. Well, no, you don't know. I didn't give it away. But <laughs> okay. something bad happens to Adrian. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, but yeah, like the way that that situation starts, uh, they're they're over at the uh, the Russian guy's house, uh, collecting uh, collecting the debt, uh, and because while they're walking over there. Because the guy's Russian, Polly just randomly starts talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis. He, he gets himself like mad about the Cuban Missile Crisis, so that's why he picks a fight with the Russian guy and ends up <laughs> killing him, right? You know, yeah, yeah. like sort of the way that like that that's funny. I think like in a, in a you know much darker way, just like the casual brutality of that. That like um, that like this is literally like their only problem with this guy is that uh, when he like came out to confront them about the tip uh, and, and they told him to, you know, fuck off that like, you know, that he didn't just like that, like he, he stood up for himself a little bit. Right. Yeah, and like, yeah. that's it. That's, that's enough. Uh, that's enough to kill him. Um, it makes me, it makes me uh, nervous to look at the, cause that, that scene is on YouTube uh, and it makes me nervous to look at the comments of it. Like what, what people think about that scene. Yeah. Uh, because to me, that scene is, I think that's the worst moment in the whole, in the whole series. But I wonder no, if there's I mean, anybody I mean, like. I, yeah, I mean, it's certainly one of them. Although, I mean, there's also, um, I mean, I, I think there are um, individual moments, you know, as uh, Ralphie with his guma, whatever. That yeah, that was pretty have, bad too. You know, might have bothered me. Um, you know, even, uh, even more than that. I mean, especially because it's, it's not like it's not just, um, you know, I guess actually, sorry, maybe I'm just trying to like justify myself because I feel like a sociopath for admitting that I found it, you know, like a little bit funny in some way. But I mean, I guess it's just that um, the way that like, you know, it escalates that quickly that they're willing to be like that monstrous about it combined with the fact that they're just like, there's also like it's also almost like slapstick. They just don't know how to handle the situation. Right, right, like, oh, right. What's going on? You know, a, they, they they got medicine for these fucks with the oh no, right? Like and they they're like running away, like yeah. they're like the three stooges, and they just like you know bumbled right, right. the like you know job painting for the old matron or something, but right. like you know with violence, but you know, but I guess like all like fun you know, what you're talking about that, like, oh, you watch it the first time in 23 and it just seems fun. Uh, And then, um, you know, and then later, like, oh my God, they're, you know, half of the show is about them pointing out how terrible these guys are. 
Uh, but it seems like all like depictions of that stuff, you know, are all kind of to one extent or another trying to like have their cake and eat it too. Like in, um, um, you know, like, like Goodfellas, um, you know, they're like very explicitly the first bunch of the movie is just, Hey guys, doesn't this look fun? Yeah. Yeah. But it's also fun watching everything kind of fall apart in Goodfellas. And it's like, and then there's also, they also do some pretty bad, stuff in goodfellas i i think the the biggest contrast is uh <clears throat> comparing comparing like goodfellas and sopranos to the godfather because uh, we talked about this last time on the show i don't i don't know if the godfather uh i don't want to say i don't know if it holds up but i feel like the we've made better much better stuff since then because mm. it's very kind of like i don't know the tone of it is very epic and sort of high-handed and you know it's very much like I, I, it's it's been a while since I watched the movie, but it just feels like that depiction of the mafia is not as accurate. Definitely not as accurate as uh, yeah, Goodfellas no, and Sopranos. You know, in that sense, I think it's I think it's definitely um, like in that sense, I think Goodfellas and you know a lot of other things are definitely better. That like uh, you know Godfather is like a very like I think it's an amazing movie, but it's like a very airbrushed like version yeah, sure. of the mafia. Although even there, right, like uh, part of like part of the point, like at the, um, you know, at the end of, uh, you know, at the end of the movie when, you know, Michael is lying to Kay and, you know, the doors are closing, like part of the point is, okay, you know, okay. But this thing that we've been romanticizing for the last three hours is also incredibly evil. Right. 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 Yeah. Uh, and you know, I, I guess like the difference between that and something like Goodfellas, much less the Sopranos, uh is that um is that it's just like grubbier right you know like like even um and they're also like maybe sticking in your face a little bit more like uh like like in goodfellas um the the movie actually starts with one of the most like viscerally disturbing like acts of violence in the whole thing yeah uh where there's the guy and um in the uh the back in the trunk of the uh, of the car who like they, they thought was dead and he's still alive and they have to open it up and stab him a bunch of times uh and uh and and it's like really disturbing to watch and then you go straight from there to all my life i wanted to be a gangster mm-hmm. and this like and this long sequence that like really is just about like yeah, I mean, it, it still really is romanticizing. It still is about like, man, doesn't this look like fun? Don't you wish you could live like this? Yeah, it always makes me think like, I wish there was a version of the mafia that just had all the fun parts of it and not the uh, crime and the murder and the extorting people, you know, because like all I mean, all the elements of it, which is like wearing wearing athleisure clothing, drinking little cups of coffee, drinking little cups of espresso and like hanging out with your boys in front of a pork store. That is how I envision my life, you know, when I get old. I don't know if it'll ever happen, um, but that is how I would like to live my older (laughs) years, you know, because the nice thing about tracksuits is you can be any you can be any age. You can be any uh, body type and they look good on you. You know, you could be you could be 400 pounds. You could be fit. You could be old. Um, (laughs) We have figured out that (laughs) that part of life, I think. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, I think the, uh, I guess the reasons that you couldn't really like separate out the fun parts of, uh, of being in the mob are, are, are one, uh, if you weren't, um, 
you know, cheating on your wife, just like the fun parts. Yeah, yeah, the all the fun, innocent stuff. That's fine. Yeah, right. That's yeah. you know, just just guys being dudes. Uh, yeah, mistress whose apartment you pay for on the other side of town. Right, 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 you know? right, 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 But not ever having to kill anybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, our, I guess, one that like, uh, I guess, like, technically, a lot of that stuff, like, um, I mean, a lot of that stuff is just kind of about like having a lot of money that, like, you could mm-hmm. uh, that uh, that if you have, um, like, you know, the not having to like have a real job, so you can just hang out all day. You know, you can indulge yourself. All this stuff, like, 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 it's just the money more or less takes care of that. Yeah. Although, although then, like, the problem is, like, then, like, why are you like? you know, randomly like hanging out, you know, with, uh, why are you randomly hanging out with the boys all, you know, all day at the right. store? No, I'm hoping that I hope I'm hoping I can do that when I'm like retired, you know, <laughs> but yeah. who knows? Uh, we'll yeah, see. no, no, fingers fair, crossed. Fair enough. Uh, you know, but they I all love to the, complain. They all love to talk about how hard they work. You know, that's another part of it in the Columbus <laughs> day episode. When he's like, what do we ever get? We have to break our balls for. And they're all just like sitting around <laughs> eating pastries, <laughs> eating rainbow it's, cookies. <laughs> right, right. It's like literally what they're doing is, yeah, right. They're like sitting in like the back room of the Bada Bing, uh, yeah. having um, uh, like just just like shooting the shit or having like, you know, Polly explain like, uh, you know, why he, uh, you know, why tying your shoelaces is gross and having everybody making fun of him. Yeah. Or sitting in front of the uh, the pork store, like sitting out at the construction site, like while people are actually working around you. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, which is, I mean, it's also like, I guess the other half of it too is that like part of the part of the fun part, uh, you know, is, uh, is having like everybody be a little bit afraid of you so you get away with stuff. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's funny to think about that because, like, I don't know. I don't know. Do any Italian men work hard? Because my uh, my family had a restaurant in Jersey for like 30 years and my great grandmother and grandmother did all the cooking in the back. I think my great uncle did some cooking, too. But I don't know if my grandfather, I don't know what he did. I think I mean, like, I don't know. I know he wasn't in the kitchen making food. And then if you, when you meet my dad, when you talk to my dad, I'm like, sometimes I, I look at my dad. I'm like, I don't know if you've ever done a day of work in your, in your life, you know? So it's very, it's a weird, it's a weird culture. It's like Italian culture. It's very like hyper-masculine, but, yeah. not, but a lot of them don't work. But like also very <laughs> forgiving of like not actually doing anything. Yeah. Like my dad, like doesn't really do yard work, doesn't know how to fix anything. You know, I've taught myself how to do all that stuff, but yeah. 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 <laughs> they just get so, so they're so spoiled. So so what so who did do the yard stuff? My mother. Okay. I see. Yeah. yeah. And I guess we did sometimes, but I yeah, but like I had to move some furniture with my dad recently at my mom's house and it was uh you know he did okay. But he I don't think he knew how to carry anything or you know. <laughs> Well, actually, I mean, I, I guess on that on that subject, right? Like, I always thought like it was a little bit funny. Uh, this is something we didn't talk about in the uh, in the bonus episode, but in uh, the very first episode of The Sopranos, uh, the uh, there's the scene uh, where Tony takes Meadow uh, to like visit this like old uh, church, 
uh and and he's like this you know my was it like my grandfather and his brothers or something like that right like that there's some yeah like rel- his, his grandfather yeah i think okay yeah, yeah you know they built this place and you know meadow being you know a stupid teenager says oh what they did it by themselves he's like no no, no. they're like a crew of workmen and you know and they didn't decide it but you know and and I realized that technically, okay, whatever, like, you know, there's some like legitimate skill in like managing that, but also on the face of it, that scene is kind of funny because Uh it's like, okay, so they didn't actually do the work. Yeah. Uh, Other people did that. They didn't design it, right? Somebody else did that. Yeah. Uh, But like they, they're middlemen. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. You know, and he was like treating this as the like, oh, these are the people who are like really like, you know, not like you know uh airy fairy contemporary americans these these were the guys with their hands in the dirt it's like yeah no they were like you know standing there like telling other people what to do yeah yeah. which is kind of what he's doing now in his life yeah you know that he's he's not actually you know producing anything he's just like making deals and shaking people down yeah the show is really like um it's it's very good at critiquing like I, I guess ideas of masculinity that we have you know because uh you know you have tony who's like the boss but then also like he doesn't really get his hands dirty and he has other people at his disposal to do stuff for him and then also he's extremely like petty and vindictive and like very childish so it's just funny to me that people it's funny to me that there's people who would watch the show and be like, Tony Soprano's the man you know <laughs> like a, a poster of Tony Soprano in their man cave like, yeah, he's yeah, so right. cool. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. he's literally he's a this, baby, like enormously overweight guy who like spends like ninety nine percent of his life sitting down, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, when he's when he's sitting down at home, like you usually see him, he's like watching TV or eating, and like uh, and even most of the rest of the time, he's just like you know sitting there like. Uh, you know, sitting there like telling his underlings what to do, or he's sitting at the, you know, the strip club. It's like all, all he's doing is like making decisions about other, what, what other people should do yeah, yeah, and like eating and watching strippers and drinking. And, you know, it's like, so it's like, yeah, no, this is, um, you know, I mean, to put it in the language of the show, right. He's not Gary Cooper. Yeah. You understand why Phil Leotardo hates him so much. He must just be so disgusted by him. <laughs> old school guy who you know went to prison yeah uh, right he's <laughs> this like just this like walking mound of appetites you know like yeah uh walking around being like easily offended by everything and you know it's like yeah no this is like this is just a piece of shit but like then like because again when you um and yeah i mean i think like they're probably the same thing you know for me that like when i originally watched it like you know, like, even if you kind of know that a lot of that is about, like, you know, these guys being scumbags and, like, a lot of the humor, you know, is is about either them being scumbags or, or them just, like, you know, saying incredibly stupid things like, um, you know, when Polly Walnuts, you know, they're talking about the dinosaurs, you know, being wiped out by a meteor. He's like, I, I, I thought they, I thought there was all meat eaters. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's like obviously these guys aren't like models of you know um, anything, right? Yeah. But like, a, uh, but again, it's also that line that because you know because they you see them have fun a lot of the time, and because people are afraid of them because of the violence, 
you know, like, like on some level that, you know, like that does all seem like, you know, cool. Like, it's like, Oh yeah, no, I, I, I like to live like that. Yeah. It makes me think like, could you make that show in today's political climate? Like probably not. Could you make a show about bad people? That was fun. That was enjoyable to watch. It just, it just feels like, cause I could just imagine myself pitching a show like this and people being like, Oh, these characters aren't, you know, they're not likable. Yeah. I think that's, I don't know. I don't, I, sometimes I don't see something like this getting uh, that far, you know? Yeah. No, I, I wonder, right. Cause like there are like, even like HBO show nows now that are like almost entirely like even, um, you know, not that it's like, you know, belongs in even the same conversation as far as quality, but like, um, like Westworld or whatever, you know, they're like primarily about bad people doing bad things. But I think mm-hmm. that like, I think like the moralism is probably a little bit more on the nose there. Like more on the nose. And it's like, you're not allowed to like, you're not allowed no. to like them. It's very clear cut of, I, I, I think with a lot of shows. No, that's right. Yeah. Who you can like and who you cannot like. Yeah, no, that's, that, that seems right. You know, that like that, that part of what made the Sopranos interest in, is that they're like constantly riding this line about like, okay, Tony, um, you know, Tony is like uh, obviously an evil person. He's in many mm-hmm. ways, like we've been talking about just like a disgusting person. Yeah. Like, like I don't think you can make a show. I don't think you, you can make a show about Donald Trump Jr. Nowadays, <laughs> but he is a very, like he could potentially be a very fun character, a, like a fun character. Who's like who you don't like, but then there's times when you feel bad for him where you see his hurt, you see his inadequacy, you know, I don't know if you would be able to or, do that. Or, uh, or Hunter Biden. Yeah. Yeah. Hunter, you could probably get away. I don't know. You could probably get away with. So, I don't so know. The, re- the reason you could get away with Hunter, but not Don Jr. That like uh, that, that Hunter like has moments of like feeling really bad about like the way that he spent his life. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But I think if you but I think if you show if you show Don Jr.'s hurt and his inadequacy, you know, that could be that could be very interesting. But I don't know if you'll ever be able to, if you'll be able to do that now. I'm not sure. Maybe. Yeah. I, I watched that. That sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you know, like you could see him like going like going through life like, you know, he's obviously like never had a job that he could like in any way pretend that he yeah. could because of him. Right. Like it's, it's just like, and then his brother-in-law who's actually evil gets to be the one to work and make deals. <laughs> and he just has to like go on Nick DePaula's podcast, <laughs> you know, like he, he doesn't even get to have a cool job. Jared, Jared Kushner's like, ah, step aside. I got this. You're not cutthroat enough. And he's kind of not, you know? Yeah, he's just like sitting there, like posting memes and like doing speaking gigs and stuff. Uh, yeah, while other people actually get to be close to the levers of power, which would actually also like would that would have to be a recurrent thing in the show. Yeah, that like like half of the show would just have to be about his interacting. Well, I mean, it couldn't be half the show because he doesn't interact with his dad that much. But like, it would be have to be like a recurrent thing that his yeah. dad is just like disgusted by him and like has his no- dad's disgusted by him. Yeah, and all he wants is his father's approval and then also like all his favorite actors and and artists and people that he likes hate his guts now and they hate his family and like the the celebrities that he gets to hang out with are like scott bayo and like (laughs) chuck zito and maybe frank stallone (laughs) you know he's 
<laughs> he gets to maybe hang out with Frank Stallone and he's just, he's just got to like, he's got to like the lies that he tells himself, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the narrative that he, he spins for himself and uh, yeah, having to confront that. I don't know. Yeah, no. And, and I think like, yeah, I think that the Don Jr., like the well done Don Jr. show would probably be a lot like the Sopranos in that like it would be like a lot of humor coming from the fact that, you know, obviously Don Jr. is an idiot. And mm-hmm. um, uh, and also that like there'd be times where you'd be kind of laughing about like his father's complete contempt for him and, you know, and all yeah. that stuff. But you'd also like feel like like you said, your you show is hurt. You know, you'd feel yeah. bad for him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, he would have moments probably of like almost or sort of realizing it, but then he'd have to hold, you know, come back. Cause I was thinking about it as you were saying that, cause the obvious, like, I think somebody who wanted to like argue the other side of this could say, no, of course they could do this show. Cause like, what about succession? Right. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's, uh, you know, like that's about a piece of shit, you know, what's, what's the, yeah. what's the difference. But I think the difference is that um, the, um, the character, you know, the, um, I don't even remember what the, uh, what the names are in the show, Candle. but the, Kendall. Yeah. Uh, Kendall is um, uh, that like Kendall is probably like a little bit too like self-aware that like he probably like um, as, as scummy as he acts most of the time, like, you know, that like he has, like, he has like a little bit more self-awareness. He has a lot of moments of feeling bad about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas like the Don Jr. thing, I think a lot of what you'd be playing with is that he's never going to like quite like, he's never going to like quite come to terms with like how worthless his life is. Yeah. He'll never, he'll never take an honest look at it. Yeah. 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 Right. And then, and then um, right. Because, you know, because there has been this like kind of cultural shift. And when I, when I say that, like, I, I want to be like really like specific. Cause like, this is not like, you know, just like a pure, like whatever, like stupid kids, PC, you know, whatever, uh-huh. like, yeah. Like, I, like, like, I think there's like a more specific thing you could say here, right? Which is that, um, like, even pretty recently, like way after like the Sopranos, uh, you know, started in like, in like the early 2010s, it seems like there was all this pop culture that was like very much about like the creators, like, like uh, wrestling with their own demons and like being like, Oh, I'm kind of a piece of shit. Here's some interesting art about it. Uh-huh. Uh, like Louie, right? Like, uh-huh. like that would, you know, I mean, that was definitely a product of that. And and people were still, you know, we're still into that. And uh, and now, like, or or like, you know, whatever, like girls in a different way, right? You know, like that's that's mm-hmm. definitely, you know, like Lana Dunham, you know, like um, having like playing with like, you know, I mean, that's like. I mean, to the extent that it's like kind of autobiographical, it's like not a good depiction, right? You know, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and people people like that. Uh, but I think I think now, like the culture as a whole is like, you know, like taken like a much more like moralistic turn that like uh, yeah, um, that I mean, like I don't think you could like never mind the Sopranos. Like I don't think you can make Louis in two thousand twenty, right? Like, even apart from what you know, Louis C.K. personally. And it's just such a weird thing too, because it almost feels like people feel like they have to, they have to do that. They have to take this because we all, we all kind of feel so powerless um, over the, over the past four years, we felt like, I don't know, maybe we let this happen or, and we see this horrible stuff that's happening every day and it's, it's tougher to, um, yeah, it's almost like people, there's this, there's this, like, there's this, uh, uh, 
there's this desperation and, and there's people feeling they have to do something, but then it's also celebrities who haven't thought of themselves, anything but themselves in the past 10 years. And I thought that, um, I thought that Sarah Cooper special on Netflix was kind of indicative of that. Cause it's like, it's the whole, the whole through line of the special is kind of, you know, her being like, Oh, this is so, I'm so scared, but there's no, and there's just a lot, a lot of celebrities in it. Cause I guess all the celebrities hate Trump too, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really talk about any, there, there's aren't, there aren't any solutions or any kind of like, not that that's what a comedian has to do, but you can't just be, you can't just be freaked out, you know? Yeah. 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 Right. Like, um, and you, you can't, like you like it seems like the big difference is that you have to be like much more like explicit about like what you're like you know what you're supposed to uh to think right like mm-hmm. like not necessarily you know like you said in, in terms of solutions but like in terms of like who you're rooting for who you're rooting against you know who's good who's bad mm-hmm. you know like 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 i think that's the um you know like like that's that's the difference like the worst version of it is uh is that kind of um you know that kind of comedy uh that's like um you know seems less designed to get people to laugh than than to get people to you know just to like clap along so oh Mm. no that's right no you tell them right that's that you know that's good Mm. uh which you know like which is just um you know, which is just insufferable, which, and by the way, right. Like, so is the shit that's reacting to that, you know, like the people who, um, you know, like the people who, who do like incredibly lazy specials that are like 97% devoted to like, God damn it. Why can't I tell a joke? Yeah. 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 Or when when you said the other side, I thought you meant people who go, go far, like people who are sort of being offensive for offensive sake. Yeah, well, that's that's kind of, that's kind of the same thing, right? Like, because yeah. I think a lot of the, um, you know, there's there's a sort of way of uh, of doing comedy that's like, you know, you sort of do the grum, you know, why can't I tell a joke? Grumbling, yeah. and then you're just like, hey, what about this, right? You know, and you just sort of say something offensive, but there's like no actual joke there, really. But it's like, yeah. oh, you know, like you snowflakes are probably triggered by this, aren't you? And it's like, no, yeah, this yeah, is just yeah. like. This is just like anti woke clapter. It's the uh, same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, um, really, actually, I guess, uh, I guess before uh, you know, be- before we wrap up, just uh, I-, I did want to, I did want to go back to you know to earlier, you know, because uh, you know, you're talking about uh, the Godfather, uh, and you're talking about uh, about Goodfellas. Uh, do you watch uh, Mean Streets? Um, it's funny. I've tried to watch that movie like twice and I couldn't, uh, I don't know. I just didn't have a desire. I, I, but I, but I watched it, you know, maybe like six years ago and then maybe like 14 years ago. So I don't know. I guess, I guess I would watch it. I, I guess I'd watch, I'll try watching it again. Yeah. Be like, what am I? Well, well, I mean, like, I I think that's, you know, just in terms of what you were saying about Goodfellas, uh, and, um, the Godfather, right? You know, because like part of the difference is that the Godfather is portraying like this like really romanticized version of like the very very top levels uh, of organized crime. Yeah, uh, and uh, and Goodfellas is, is is like you know like these guys are like you know middle management at best. Right, right, right. No, no, nobody's even uh, nobody's even a made guy. You know, in uh, in the movie, in you know like. Um, 
well, whatever. I, I guess I've given away enough things about enough movies uh, today. But uh, and um, and then, but then, like Mean Streets, if you ever do watch it, it's like a little bit like I think it's like one step further uh, in uh, in that progression, even though it came out earlier, uh, because it's about uh, it's about people who are like these super low level enforcers who are sometimes shaken down by corrupt cops. Uh, there's a scene where there's like a five minute like brawl because somebody calls somebody else a mook and the beginning of the, you know, like the beginning of the fight is, Hey, what's a mook? You can't call me a mook. Uh, so it, it, you know, like it, it definitely like takes that, um, you know, takes that a step, uh, a step further. I mean, I, I guess I'm just trying to think like, um, it, I, like, I guess these movies were interesting because it seems like the mafia was such a pervasive part of American culture. Like even, even, a I'm, now you're making me think of that movie, The Pope of Greenwich Village with Mickey Rourke and Eric Roberts, which like to me, that movie is very silly because it's sort of like that same it's that same aesthetic. But Mickey Rourke is supposed to be like a guy that's really cool and he's he's a restaurant manager. <laughs> it's just I guess that's I guess that's Boomer's idea of because it came out in the 80s. Right. So that was like yeah, yeah. that's like Boomer's a Boomer's idea of being cool. You just. You manage a restaurant. You wear a suit, and you listen to Sinatra. <laughs> and there's and now and now you have a painting of uh of Robert De Niro in your basement. But you but you did smash it when he insulted Trump at the Tonys. You smashed <laughs> right, it and right, set it on right. fire. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. I I guess uh, then I guess you watch this stuff and you go, oh, this was this was never that cool. So what is what what is what am I? Who am I? What am I supposed to do here? You know, it's like we you have to like redefine. You have to redefine what what being a man is and what being cool is. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, of course, actually being cool would be uh, Ace Ace Rothstein and uh, running a casino and like doing a public access TV show about it. Right. Yeah, okay. being it's just it's just having a podcast now. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, nice we all get around. to be exactly that. We cool all get now. to be, yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. Well, uh, <laughs> I think uh, gonna uh, gonna wrap this up uh, on that. Uh, is uh, is there anything you want to plug before you go? Um, yeah, I got a podcast, The Sit Down, comes out every Wednesday, and then uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Racine Mike, and then Twitter Mike Racine. I'm not doing as much stand up nowadays, but Every once in a while, I'll be on a show in the city that I'll promote on Instagram or Twitter. Okay. So. Uh, and, and you've still been able to do that like this year? Oh, yeah, a little bit. We, you know, there's these like outdoor shows and, and oh, yeah. people, some people do them and they're, sometimes they're good. And I mean, just like all shows, sometimes they're good. Yeah, right. Sometimes they're, you know, it's cold out or it's raining or whatever. And, um, but, and then, but now, now like COVID numbers are spiking. So this whole year has been very, for comics, it's been very like yeah, up in the air. It's yeah, been very, you know, what do we do? Do we like focus more on the podcast or do video content or, or go to Prospect Park to perform for two people in the freezing cold? Right, 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 Jesus. Yeah. Well, um, not that it was good before that, but it's worse. Yeah. It's worse now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, so uh, you can uh, you can see the uh, the first uh, of the Sopranos bonus episodes uh, on uh, on YouTube. It's also on the podcast feed. Uh, talked uh, about episode one. Uh, 
wanted to uh, wanted to get Mike on the uh, on the main show uh, for a few reasons. One of which is it seemed a little unfair. Now knowing Waz and both been on, so uh, everybody who's uh, who's doing that uh, should uh, should also be on the uh, be on the regular show. But um, going to do episode two sometime in uh, in December, and uh, then either eventually we're going to get sick of it, or else. Uh, you know, we're going to wrap up the uh, going to wrap up the series in like the early 2030s sometime. I'm having a good time. I like I like it. I think it's fun. Yeah, me too. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate cool. it. Thanks, Ben. Take care. You too. All right. That was the comedian and podcaster, Mike Racine. Uh, he is the host of a podcast called The Sit Down, uh, which you should listen to. Uh, I do. He has also been coming on um, uh, this show for uh, monthly bonus episodes to uh, to recap uh, The Sopranos. Uh, you know, again, I thought that would be a, a fun thing to do after uh, after the debate uh, earlier. A little, uh, little balance for the show to uh, do some... Um, philosophical arguments in the first half and then while we all recover as friend of the podcast uh, Dave Rubin would say from the high level ideas uh, can uh, chat with Mike a little bit about uh, comedy and the Sopranos and gangster movies coming up next week I'm going to have current affairs in-house economist uh, Rob Larson uh, and historians Matt Karp and Alex Gurevich uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, capitalism and unfreedom and something called the Republican uh, idea of liberty, uh, which was very important in the movement against slavery and in uh, early organized labor efforts that Alex Gurevich talks about, like the Knights of Labor and uh, Rob Larson's book, uh, Capitalism and Freedom, uh, the uh, Toll Road to Serfdom, uh, kind of brings that up to uh, the present day and socialist critiques of contemporary capitalism. The week after, uh, I'm very excited to say we are going to have uh, Amber Frost from Chapo uh, talking about her article in Catalyst magazine about hashtag activism uh, and also Natalie Wynn, uh, who you may know uh, as ContraPoints. Uh, and uh, the week after that, uh, the great Anna Kasparian uh, is going to be back on the podcast. I thought she was going to be on this week. There's a little scheduling mix up, but uh, she is going to be on there. Uh, there's going to be a lot of other good content uh, coming up. I hope that you're watching uh, the uh, the YouTube channel that you've subscribed to that because uh, in between these episodes, uh, I've been doing, I don't know if I'm going to keep up this pace, but I've been doing like three or four live streams uh, on the YouTube channel every week. Um, so, um, you know, I did one uh, this last week uh, with the historian Daniel Bessner about fascism uh, and uh, how it works historically and the debate about whether there's some sense in which the Trump wing of the GOP is fascist. I did one with uh, Peter Coffin and Angie Speaks uh, from, uh, from, the, uh, from the Low Society podcast. Uh, I also usually do uh, at least one that's just a solo live stream, usually midweek, uh, take some super chat questions, uh, just kind of hang out with the audience a little bit. Uh, speaking of the audience, uh, if you possibly can, uh, please do consider joining the Patreon so that's patreon.com slash Ben Burgess uh, for uh, five bucks a month. Uh, you get early access to every single episode. You get regularly scheduled uh, Discord office hours, group voice chats. Uh, you get access to that Discord server. Uh, and uh, I've been trying to work on some, uh, some bonus content for you guys. Uh, 
I I did do a bonus episode with uh, with Jesse Single, but then I accidentally deleted the recording. So now I uh, I neurotically record everything like uh, like Nixon uh, recording uh, visitors to the White House. Uh, but uh, but we're going to re-record the uh, the conversation with Jesse. We're going to do some other uh, good uh, good bonus content for patrons coming up. Uh, and uh, and most of all, again, if if you um, you know, it's 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 not a subscription service. It's solidarity and support. Uh, if you like the work we're doing here, and I do say we uh, because uh, there are other people behind the scenes who uh, who do editing, who do promotional stuff. Uh, and uh, like I keep saying, I'd, I'd really like to be in a position where everybody who did anything for this podcast uh, made a living wage out of doing that. So uh, if you if if that is within your means. Uh, to uh, to get that five bucks a month, I uh, really appreciate the support. Please do do that. Uh, even if not, uh, you know, please, you know, I understand. Uh, please do uh, uh, like and subscribe on YouTube. Uh, please do rate and review wherever you're listening to this as a podcast. Those things really do help, uh, and uh, really do appreciate the support. So, see you guys next week uh, with uh, Matt Carp, Alex Gurovich, uh, and Rob Larson. Left is best. <laughs>